Someone from the choir after the first service said, many of us leave right before the sermon at the second, don't be offended. <laughs> and I said, I'm not. They do it at White Bear every Sunday too, so I've, I've developed a thick skin, it's fine. <laughs> it's good to be here among you. I've been here mainly for grand occasions, for ordinations, Justin's and Kelly Clements and Ruth McKenzie, and for the standing on the side of love service all in this space. I, kind of in my head sometimes refer to it as First Universalist Church of the Ordinations. Um, it's a beautiful thing. Uh, and so it's good to be with you. I bring greetings from the people of the woods uh, in White Bear Lake at the White Bear UU Church in Matamidi. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you here on this Sunday morning and I bring their love with me. Flowers and garbage are both organic in nature, writes Thich Nhat Hanh, the Buddhist monk. So looking deeply into the nature of a flower, he writes, you can see the presence of compost and garbage. The flower is going to turn into garbage, but don't be afraid. You are a gardener, and you have in your hands the power of transformation to take garbage and compost, turn them into flowers, into fruit, into vegetables. You don't throw anything away because you are not afraid of garbage. Your hands are capable of transformation into something new and beautiful. That can be a challenging charge from the monk. If we look into our lives, messy, sometimes saturated with the presence of what seems like garbage piling all around us, broken relationships, competing values, a messed up society that is far from the just and equitable world for which we long. And closer to home, perhaps we live far from the content, peaceable, meditative, soul, heart, home, that we'd prefer. Sometimes by practicing prayer myself, trying to be better, a better spiritual practitioner, a better prayer, to be more well-read and more down-to-earth, more in touch with the news but less enmeshed with current events, and more compassionate, and the list goes on and on. I can't help but see my own infrequency at spiritual practice, at prayer, as the possibility of spiritual failure. And I think to myself, I'm a minister for God's sake. I'm supposed to be praying all the time, but I don't. And when I actually slow down to engage in a spiritual practice, it reminds me of how often I should do that, much more often. And I sit there thinking, I should pray more often. I should pray more often. And it's not the most affirming meditation to have. <laughs> but I get through that and get to something better, so, so it's fine. That is a world that we live in. It's a world of all or nothing. It becomes quite a challenge to be content with the small amount of good we can do, the few moments of meditation, the limited amount of compassion, the seemingly insignificant acts of kindness and of justice and of compassion. The world around us tells us if we can't fix the whole problem, then we haven't fixed anything at all. If we can't be perfect, our soul might be telling us, then we must be a failure. This or that, all or nothing. A member of our worship committee at the White Bear Church helped bring an old story to new understanding that Elaine told so beautifully with the children this morning. He spoke of the parable of the Good Samaritan as one of manageable compassion. And so to remind you, the text says, a man asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jericho to Jerusalem and fell into the hands of robbers 
who stripped him, beat him, left him for dead. And now by chance a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And so likewise a Levite saw him, and he also passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him. And when he saw him, he was moved with compassion. He went to him, he bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. What this story offers to my mind this day are two significant insights. First, it calls its reader to be mindful of needs right in front of your face, manageable to some extent, manageable timely needs. They come to you. They're right there. You don't have to go seek something out. A manageable act of compassion offers itself. And the second simple-ish truth is that basic needs cut across every type of stereotype or judgmental assumption that help in the midst of despair is a common calling. Help is help, no matter who it is. If someone is beaten, sitting in the gutter, left for dead, the call for help is simple. A striking feature of the text is that in the telling of the parable, although Elaine brought up in her children's story that we know a little bit about the man who is traveling from some of the archeological understandings and biblical scholarship, that, that, that. but in the parable itself, there's no designation of who this man is. He's only defined by his need. It says a man, that's it, a person. And then he was defined by his experience, robbed, beaten, left for dead, only defined by his experience. He's not labeled as all three men walking by were, by race or ethnicity, class or culture, simply by his need. And for all the complexity that there is in the text around socioeconomic and cultural messages, there is also a simple message at the same time. Need for help is need for help. Now don't get me wrong, it's critically important in the work of justice to understand complexity at times, to understand systems and cycles of poverty, suffering, discrimination, and power, of institutional oppression, systemic racism and sexism, classism, ageism, ableism, and the isms go on and on. It's critically important in the work of justice to understand the complexity of people and systems and situations and at the same time, when it comes down to something right in front of you, to a person left and hurting and beaten and robbed, all those classifications can dissolve into a simple truth. Look into the eye, feel the hand, know the heart, See the soul of the person right there, right now, in whatever language you choose to use to say, I see you, beloved child of God. You are in need, and I offer my hand. It's manageable compassion. It's simple, and it's complex. And it seems to be a striking contrast to the rampant cultural messages we get to do more, to buy more, to measure up, to be successful, to achieve, which in, the term, in terms of justice work translates into needing to fix the whole thing, to tackle the tangled thicket of global injustice in one fell swoop, and if you're not addressing every issue, well, then you must be ethically bankrupt. God, I hope that's not the case. I share that cry. 
This is what a colleague of mine calls the oppression of success. The oppression of success. It's a story that creates unspoken expectations. My dear friends, our churches are not immune to it at all. And perhaps in some of our churches, mine I know and others, it's amplified. The oppression of success. That once you enter these doors, you need to be successful. You need to be smart, you need to be educated, you need to be extra just and uber conscious about the world and its injustices. You need to be an intellectual, but also down to earth. You need to fear superstition and mystical practices, but have your own grounded spiritual practice. And if you don't, if you can't keep up, then, well, you're not up to snuff. You need to drive the right car. You need to go to the right rallies. You need to eat the right food. You need to shop at the right co-op. And you need to attend all the right justice gatherings. You need to dress nicely, but not too nicely. (laughs) So all those expectations and a thousand others mount up around you into a mountain and brings with it a sense of internal judgment and comparison. Always, do I measure up? Do I fit in? Am I holy and sacred still with all of my shortcomings? The need to do good and to be good build a wall between your head and your heart. And then there's the final kicker. We have lost, and by we I'm talking Unitarian Universalism writ large, but also religious liberalism writ large. As religious liberals, we lack a fluent vocabulary for failure. We don't like to admit it or talk about it. Our religious liberal ancestors spoke of the progress of humanity onward and upward forever, and they were doing it in the context in opposition to a very conservative, damning theology, and it had a good place and still does But casting away some of the old traditional language, sin, evil, brokenness, confession, I think we also have too often cast away the sentiment of what those words mean. To speak of our human condition as being broken and beautiful. We've lost all the theological language. We've given it to the religious conservatives. They own it, and they now define what sin and evil are. So I wonder... If we have cast away all those things because of the baggage, have we lost the root? Have we lost the ability to claim them if they could be helpful to us? How do we speak of our own vulnerability in a spiritual way if we have lost a language of brokenness? How do we speak of systemic injustice, racism, homophobia, economic disparity, educational disparity, if we've lost any understanding of evil or sin or confession? Now, what I'm not suggesting is that we are all irredeemable sinners, not at all. And I'm not suggesting that we put up a little confessional booth and Elaine and Justin and Jen and Ruth come and hear your sins all week. That would be really, really weird. (laughs) But I am suggesting that perhaps we can think creatively to reclaim some of the old words, and if not the words themselves, then the sentiment of the old words. To have some spiritual vocabulary, some language to speak about our not-so-tidy, not-always-perfect, not-always-successful lives, and that it's part of our whole humanity. To be wholly human means we're imperfect, and that's okay, and it does not diminish your inherent worth and dignity. It does not take away your beloved, holy, sacredness. To grow your soul and repair the world is the theme here this month. 
This is the nexus, the center of spiritual life. The balance to oppression of success, the oppressions of social injustice, it's a calling to find a center so that you don't get toppled over so quickly with all the demands. To grow your soul and to repair the world. To live at the intersection of spiritual practice and social justice. The intersection of spiritual practice and social justice. It means to do what we can for the common good. It is not a lazy spirituality. It is not a lazy justice mindset. But it's to work really hard for social equity, to have courageous conversations. We return to a spiritual practice at the same time to build ourselves up, to not let the well run dry, to renew ourselves into, re into resilience, to forgive ourselves and others and have the forgiveness wash over us into renewal and renewed hope. What this intersection provides is a reflection to say these things to ourselves. I know I say them to myself, try to remind myself of them. I'm called to serve the world and I am imperfect. I have gifts to give and I often miss the mark. I have compassion for those who suffer and I have compassion for myself. I can do good in the world and I'm not called to save the world. The world is broken and the world is beautiful. I am broken and I am beautiful. And then the monk's words echo back to turn garbage into flowers, to notice simple needs right in front of us, manageable compassion, the good that is possible right in our own hands right now, to give what we can and to let it go. It's difficult to give up control around our spiritual lives and around justice work. It's difficult and it takes courage to let it go. Carrie Newcomer is a Quaker singer-songwriter and she sings these lyrics. Courage doesn't always shout, but it whispers in the night when you get up one more morning and you try another time. We've tried yelling at each other and it hasn't worked so well. Throwing gas on the fire never helped, as far as I can tell. Throwing stones cuts deep, but a little kindness goes deeper still. Look inside you, it's the best place to start. The greatest revolution is a simple change of heart. Perhaps a simple change of heart is about living a more simple life. Seeking a life that attempts to be unencumbered or at least untangled a little bit from all the pulls and the demands that surround us, the expectations of consumerism and capitalism that call us to measure up to find a reputation, to be, to act, to look, to live a certain prescribed way. In a world of complex expectation and constant judgment, it's easy to be quickly pulled in so many directions that it pulls us right apart, unravels us from the core of our own identity. So do what you can. Don't overthink everything. Simplify your daily actions by core values. Don't assume you have to do everything, fix everything, save everyone. God help us if we have that obligation. But take the weight of the world off your shoulders and simply offer your open heart and see where the spirit of love leads. And so I leave you with a list of expectations. 
but I hope a list of freedom that allows you to realize being your whole self and doing the work of justice and hope in the world doesn't always have to be so complex. And the little you're able to do matters more than you might think. So smile, shake hands, look others in the eye, hold your children, listen deeply, love unconditionally, plant a tree and volunteer, plant anything now that the ground is thawing, forgive regularly both yourself and others, feed the birds, take a walk, Stand up for your values. Tell the story of your people. Look at the sky. Look at the stars. And breathe. And repeat that over and over and over again. And then just notice the ordinary miracles of the everyday as garbage magically turns into flowers. And flower by flower, the whole world will begin to bloom. May it be so, and amen.